If you would like to support the Proper Mental Podcast, you can do so by joining the Patreon community. It's £5 a month, and for that you get early access to the episodes as soon as I record them. You also get the video recordings of these episodes that aren't available anywhere else. And it also allows me to keep this podcast ad-free. I don't want to interrupt these stories to try and sell you things. I don't want advertisements to get in the way of talking about mental health. I want to keep this show independent, and the Patreon allows me to do exactly that. You can also be a part of a Patreon community that's ever-growing and expanding, and it's filled with people who are passionate about talking about mental health, about getting into these deeper conversations. And hopefully as that community grows, there'll be all other sorts of behind-the-scenes content and different things that I'll be able to offer you for your money. If that sounds like something you'd like to be involved in, there's a link in the episode notes to get to the sign-up page, or you can go to patreon.com slash propermentalpodcast. And please know that any and all support is hugely appreciated. Thank you very much for listening. Welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. podcast this is episode 148 and my guest this week is dr ben cave which is the pen name of a practicing general and forensic psychiatrist and for over 30 years ben has worked as a prison psychiatrist a community psychiatrist and as a consultant in medium secure low secure and general mental health units he's also the author of what we fear most a book in which he reflects on a lifetime on the front line of forensic psychiatry and the extremes of mental illness and in this episode i chat to ben about his work about what he does and about why he started doing it. And we talk about some of the more challenging aspects of mental illness and things like the good and the bad sides of diagnosis. We chat about some of the misconceptions and stigma around mental illness and how all of that kind of contributes to mental illness getting lost really in the wider conversation around mental health. We talk about some of the conditions that Ben has worked with over the years. We talk about things like delusions, insight and how people respond as they start to get better. We talk about recovery, the impact of societal issues and environment, why some people get sick why people get mentally ill we really get into it and Ben was just he was wonderful to speak to he's a lovely lovely man and it was fascinating and it felt important to kind of learn about the the realities of treating and working with some of the most troubled men and women in society Ben was good enough to send me his book before we sat down Um, I can highly recommend it it was quite eye-opening really it's beautifully written it's a wonderful read and obviously when it comes to proper mental I kind of I pride myself in dealing with some of the more challenging aspects of the mental health and mental illness conversation. You know, I don't leave mental illness out of the mix. I'm not scared to go swimming in the deep end and get into these things. That's really important to me. And I think it's what sets this podcast apart from other mental health podcasts, right? This is not nice and fluffy. Proper mental could not be described like that. But even bearing that in mind, reading Ben's book and then chatting to him for this episode, it's it's a lot. It is a lot. We really are talking about the extremes of mental illness. And that's just so important to, to shine a light on there. It's what the book does. It's what Ben does. And it's hopefully what we do in this episode. There was so much I wanted to chat to him about. I had pages of notes, but I was also keen to try and keep this episode still conversational and still 
quite flowy. I didn't want it to become sort of question and answer, even though I was trying to ask him loads of questions. But it did mean that there was stuff I wanted to chat to Ben about that I didn't quite get to. There was things on my notes that when I look back at them afterwards, I felt a little bit like I'd left a few things on the table, really. But it's a very good start, I think. And Ben, if you're listening, maybe you could come back on. Maybe we'll do a bit more sometime, a bit further down the line. But yeah, I hope you enjoy. I'd highly recommend Ben's book. If you are curious, it's recently been the BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week. And if you head over to BBC Sounds, you can listen to excerpts from it. It's read by Adrian Scarborough, who um, has been in loads of things. He's a wonderful actor. I kind of knew him as Pete from Gavin and Stacey, but he's done yeah all manner of things. And that's a really lovely listen. So you can go and check that out as well on the BBC. And if you want to give... Ben a follow. It's at Dr. Ben Cave on all the usual places. You'll have already heard a little advert for the Patreon community for the Proper Mental Podcast. I'm not going to bang on about it again, but if you wanted to join the community, if you wanted to get involved and support the show, help me to keep it going and keep it independent and ad-free, we would love to have you on board. If you've got two minutes to review this episode or any other episode of the Proper Mental Podcast, please feel free to do so. This is episode 148 with Dr. Ben Cave. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Dr. Ben Cave. How are you, mate? Very well. Thank you, Tom. Oh, good. Good to hear. You mentioned before that you're on, on call this morning, Ben. Is that is that the case? I am, yes. <laughs> I'm covering three different hospitals. Uh, each of them has a junior doctor in, so I, I hope we don't get called. But uh, forgive me if we do, I'll have to take the calls. Yeah, if we have to uh, cut this short and reschedule for another uh, <laughs> another another time, mate. I hope not. But there we go. Um, I thought probably, I mean, yeah, while we're talking about being on call, probably your work is the best place to start. And I, I was kind of thinking about when we treat people, um, that's the royal way, uh, when we treat people with uh, mental illness and mental health issues and things like that, there's a lot of um, a lot of words that I think we're very used to hearing and don't really know what they mean. And a lot of those are job titles, right? So I was wondering to start off if we could kind of dig into that a little bit. But what's the kind of difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Do you know, I, it, my, my wife asked the same question when we first met. Um, it's actually a really good question. Uh, psychiatrists, um, to get to be a psychiatrist, you qualify as a doctor first. You're a medically qualified doctor. Uh, and then you do your house jobs. In my day, we did then senior house jobs, registrar, and then you became a consultant after specialist training. And throughout that process, you have to take your membership of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, uh, two, three parts in it now. Um, so we are medical specialists, and I see the world through the prism of my undergraduate training with the white coat doctor, the stethoscope, and, you know, I, I write about my training in the book. A psychologist uh, comes at it from far more of literally the psychological background. They don't have the medical training. They are graduates who then do a three-year clinical doctorate in psychology. Now, unfortunately, psychologist has lost its meaning. There's no protected title to just the word psychologist. Um, so if someone describes themselves as a psychologist, the first question to them is, what does that mean? Are you a clinical psychologist, a forensic psychologist, occupational psychologist, sports psychologist? Those are the protected characteristic titles. 
So uh, I work very closely with psychologists. I have done throughout both my general psychiatry and forensic psychiatry. I suppose in truth, my job is to give people the medical support and treatment, the diagnostic workup, the medication, so that they have got sufficient rationality, capacity, insight, understanding, dare one say sanity, to, to make use then of the psychological approaches to care. And that's when it gets kind of interesting because the, the, the treatment becomes more of a discourse, more of a narrative. Right, yeah. So I can see why those two roles would kind of um, like intersect at different points through a, a patient's journey. Yes. But I suppose some people need a bit of help getting to the point where they can maybe do some more of that work to dig around and understand what's going on with them. Is that kind it, of it depends what the problem is? You know, some sometimes fairly traditionally. Now I'm back from forensics doing general adult psychiatry. Uh, I see a lot of people with anxiety, trauma, uh, OCD type problems. And in truth, I'm not sure that they necessarily need a psychiatric approach to begin with. So they will often bypass that stage and go direct to a psychologist for their CBT, for their behavioral response inhibition sort of training. Um, and, and that's perfectly reasonable. But often I will do an assessment I'll do the workup, make sure there's nothing else going on, make sure they're not thyrotoxic, make sure there's not some un, uh, some other syndrome or some clinical problems that we're missing. And then I'll refer them on with a diagnosis and a treatment plan to the psychologist. So I, I think the yeah, when I was training more years ago than I'd care to admit now, there was this sort of dichotomy between the medical or the psychological approach and people still talk about the medical model and to be honest it's a load of bunkum because for years and years we've practiced both and there's no problem about having the psychological approach and the medical approach at the same time if it's appropriate so it's perfectly reasonable to treat let's for instance say a, a moderate severe depression with medication and therapy and that's the way i operate yeah, I mean, I suppose it's all like um, tools at your disposal, right? So mm. it's like depending on what the individual needs at that time. And those needs change as well, don't they? There will be times in people's life where they need, you know, maybe some medication and sometimes when maybe they don't and, and vice versa with the therapy. For side, sure, right? absolutely. It, it, it depends on the nature of the beast and what the illness is or the problem or the trauma or what understanding the patient wants. You know, I, I've had therapy myself and I, I it wasn't, relevant or germane to think about medication but so many of my patients now coming into an acute psychiatry ward it's absolutely medication that they need to begin with that then re re lets them regain themselves because they've lost contact with reality sometimes and then that's what allows them to progress through hospital and get them out as quickly as possible yeah yeah sure so what was your um yeah, why did you want to go down into this this uh, line of work, Ben? What was your, your route into this? <laughs> Coming from a mad family, I think. <laughs> Isn't it always? Um, I rather suspect if you ask cardiologists why they um, uh, become cardiologists, you'd find a lot of heart disease running in the family. I suspect, um, I've got no evidence for it. I think psychiatrists and psychologists are often... Uh, aware of issues in the family and themselves perhaps I, th I don't think I'm any different I grew up with uh, the, the spectre of suicide in the family my my mother's brother uh, took his own life 
Uh, she was a young woman at the time. I think I was just a toddler. But there was also an autistic uncle. We didn't know it was autism. He's a delightful chap, but he was just unusual, absolutely beautiful and loved by everybody. But he just thought differently about things. Uh, and, you know, I, I suppose now we get, I look back and go, of course it was autism, but we didn't have the words or the structure to understand it as such back then. Another uncle with a quite a severe learning disability from a perinatal injury, uh, the umbilical cord went around his neck. Uh, and in my adult life, um, I've recognized my mother had a propensity towards depression. I've got a cousin who was actually a professor of psychology himself. He took his own life in the context of some personal problems. So actually, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of steeped in, in a sort of family tradition of mental illness. Um, I'm not sure I sort of lucked out completely. I, I grew up with quite severe obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety. Um, fortunately, mine kind of remitted as I went into my adult life. It was very much a childhood response to anxiety and so forth. So that, that's really why I thought it was quite an easy thing to do. And I, I was one of those rare creatures that went to medical school going, I want to do psych psychiatry. And I thought that was cool. Um, I had a brief flirtation with my stethoscope. I, I really liked neurology. I liked chest medicine. Uh, I absolutely loathed obstetric and gynecology. I couldn't bear it. How, how I delivered a dozen healthy babies is completely beyond me, but I did. Um, so that, that's my backstory, really. And uh, I couldn't be a pilot, unfortunately, because I was uh, colorblind. So what else could I do but be a psychiatrist? Well, you know, if you can't be a pilot, then uh, yeah, well, that's <laughs> what, what, I what are you going to be do, as right? a kid? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you think sort of growing up with um, these sorts of things in the house and having that sort of even subconscious awareness of it around you, do you think that kind of helped with the the sort of the empathy and compassion that I'm going to assume are like a huge part of of what you do, particularly when you were working in the the forensic end of of psychiatry? Um. Yes, to a point. I, I, I think the empathy, I suppose by definition, you kind of need to have gone through something yourself to actually have empathy. I'm not sure I can empathise with some of my forensic patients because in truth, I've had a fairly privileged upbringing, you know, despite the vicissitudes of life and, you know, having a lot of illness. It was a very loving, caring family. My formative years weren't sort of problematic I, I had stable caregivers they loved me I loved them it was a good school I had a good education all of these things I took for granted going into my adult life and it's those things that my patients in the forensic field who often have complex comorbidities with personality problems dependence syndromes and then biological loading for mental illness that sort of comes through in their 20s their lives have been a complete mess and I look at the privilege that my life, my life has given me and the stability that that afforded me to, to have a state, the education, the desire to go through to university and the years of deferred gratification that with the best will in the world, they would never have been able to do. Um, so, you know, the, looking after our children and giving them that stability is so vital for the future development of, you know, stability and good mental health. They never had it. They were so disadvantaged. Um, they had no stable caregivers. 
parental discord, parental violence that they were witness to. They were traumatized themselves. Sometimes they saw the most horrific physical sexual injuries between the parents or to siblings. They were often the victim of abuse themselves. They bunked off school. Nobody stopped it. They get into trouble. They were punished inconsistently. They didn't have the, you know, the good teacher role models that, you know, is so important in pupils' lives. Uh, and frankly, they never had a chance. So I'm not sure how much I can empathise. I can certainly sympathise with them and go mm -hmm. there, but for the grace of God, go I. But um, and also, if, if truth be told, I, I think. I possibly drifted into forensic psychiatry because I was uncertain of my own ability to deal with the mental illness that I was seeing in people like me. So it was easier to turn to a different group of people who had had profoundly difficult backgrounds and say, well, you're not like me, I, I can mentally separate. And it's only as I've got older and more mature I've been able to go back into general psychiatry and I'm I'm 59 now and I'm seeing people of my own age with severe depressions and all sorts of problems in their life and I kind of get it and I've got the maturity to deal with it that perhaps as a young man I lacked. So in yeah. a sense, paradoxically, I think forensic psychiatry was easier for me. Fascinating, but easier. Yeah, and I, I suppose when you kind of are hearing these stories about people's lives and the you know their true stories their real lives and that's something that's the complete opposite well then sometimes that does help us to find compassion right because you kind of feel like well i've had this uh this loving um upbringing and it puts me in a position that i'm then able to help because i've had the advantages that maybe these people haven't had right so it kind of like helps us to find that yeah in a in a different way to the question i originally asked i think uh, absolutely um I, I write about it in the book in the sense of metaphorically putting a, a picture on the wall of hope and recovery and what it looks like. And I think that's what good therapists do, whether you're medical or psychological or counselling or, or whatever it is. And that's why I think the peer support programmes of sort of people who have been through various conditions, be it addiction or bipolar or whatever, it's so much more powerful than somebody like me coming along and saying this is how you should do it because actually hearing it from, from your own peer group who have had to have gone through the process themselves it, it's a far more potent medium to, to recover um, so it, it, in a sense when we talk about rehabilitation of mentally disordered offenders that being the term of people I have been looking after much of my life it's not so much rehabilitation it's habilitation because they've never actually had that habilitative process in their young lives so they're learning about how to interact with people without hitting them for the first time uh, we're teaching them social principles how to get on in life um, how to manipulate the world around them because frankly what really pisses me off is this term manipulation um, because most of my patients are really rubbish at manipulation. I'm good at it. I can manipulate the world around me. I've got the tools and the skill to do it. And they don't. And so when they try to get their own way, they do it clumsily and they're accused of being manipulative, which is the further thing, thing from the truth. They just don't know how to get it their own way. Yeah. Do you think that like that kind of that, that subtle difference around manipulation, do you think that's kind of it's just a sort of stigma around mental illness, right? That we kind of like assume that um, these, there's so much negativity around 
mental illness, especially some of the more what would be thought of as like so severe diagnosis, I suppose. Um, but one thing I was really interested to ask you about today is like how the media drives that, because I know like in your book, you worked with a lot of people with schizophrenia and a lot of people experiencing like uh, delusions and psychosis and things like yeah. that. Yeah. In films and books, they tend to be the killer, right? They tend to be, that's what they, the, the bad guy always has some sort of personality disorder or, or yes, something like yes. that, isn't it? Or in and James I, Bond, they have a physical stigma that they bleed, they bleed, you know, they cry blood or, or they have no earlobes or something. Bizarre <laughs> physical characteristics. And you think, yeah. why are they doing that? Yeah. But that kind of, that changes how we think about these things, doesn't it? And it's unbelievable how ingrained in us i think that yeah. uh mental illness is what makes it so why people are so like scared and scared to talk about it and scared to, yeah. to think about it but it really plays a part doesn't it stigma's massive and we kind of as a society i think we want to other the bad people and we want to say society isn't bad there must be something uniquely different about the people like lucy letby or whomsoever the, the serious offender is in that decade or part of life. So we have to say, well, they must be ill to do that. And they're not. So much of my job is actually seeing serious offenders and not saying they're schizophrenic, but saying they're absolutely normal and they need to go to prison for punishment because what they've done has nothing to do with mental illness. And one of the statistics I trot out very often is when you look at the crime of uh, murder, when you've killed somebody, most people are caught in this country. And there's around 650, 700 homicides each year. Uh, and I think it's almost 97% or so are caught. Um, when they're assessed, only 10 or 11% of people are, are, are recognised to have some sort of mental disorder that diminishes their responsibility for the offence. So only 11% of people, even with the most serious offences, actually have some sort of reduced culpability. And that's fascinating because most people would say, obviously, people who kill, they must have some sort of mental illness. And it's nonsense. Yeah, that, that I think people would be shocked by that statistic, you know. Well, it's a salutary statistic and we, yeah. you know, we need to trumpet that because... Okay, the, I, I was sort of raised on the, the notion that mental illness doesn't predict violence or risk. Well, the truth is, most of the risk in people with mental illness is to themselves. There probably, in truth, is a, a smallish increase of risk with schizophrenia to others. But frankly, when you think about what people with severe mental illness like schizophrenia go through, and they're deluded, they're hallucinated, their thinking's not right, it's hardly surprising their behaviour is sometimes bizarre. Now, coming back to the, the point you were making about the, um, uh, the, the discussion, the dialogue about mental health now, uh, you're right to point out that most of my life I've been dealing with mental illness, not mental health. And I think what is happening now is great because we're talking about the mental health. But part of the reason I wrote the book is because we're still not talking about the mental illness side of things. So we've got halfway. And the, the backlash against that debate about mental health now is people are going, oh, it's fashionable. It's trendy. People want to have a diagnosis. People are talking about everyone sort of cashing in on it or getting out of work as a result. So in a sense, it's society defending itself again uh, and going, well, this is wrong, it's taboo, it's stigmatised. But 
God, yes, mental illness is the most stigmatized thing. It's shocking. Yeah, yeah. It's um it's tricky, isn't it? Because it's kind of like I don't know the I think sometimes using the phrase mental health is like we use it as a shorthand to mean whatever we need it to mean in that moment. So someone could say, I'm struggling with my mental health and it could mean, um, you know, my life is very full. I'm feeling a lot of pressure and I'm not operating as I should be. And it can also mean I am in immediate need of medical intervention and it can mean anything in in between that. And I think as much of awareness is a good thing, it has kind of, I don't know. It's almost like it's given us a word, one word for too many different things. Right. And it kind of the message, it gets murky, doesn't it? The water gets murky. And I think there's a generational lack of understanding as well, because if a young person says I'm having a problem with my mental health today, I sort of get it because I'm in and around that group of people a lot. But many people of my age or older will go, you know, sort of pull yourself together. Why are you talking about mental health? You're just having a bad day. Get over it. So there isn't that sort of intuitive understanding. And it's kind of like the generations need to understand each other again. Um, it's all too easy to decry the sort of loose use of language because mental health doesn't have a meaning. I mean, the bizarre thing is, if you look at the Mental Health Act, mental illness isn't defined. There is no satisfactory definition of mental illness. So if we don't know what mental illness is, what, what's mental health? Is it the absence of illness? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's um, guys, fascinating. Yeah, and that's something I've noticed as well with a lot of people that I speak to who have um, like a, a specific diagnosis of what would be a mental illness. Um, it's almost like by t- talking about mental health, it almost takes away the sting from that a little bit. So people will say stuff like, oh, "I've got a severe mental illness," so they feel the need to precursor it with a word to let people know how yes. challenging it is. But really all mental illness is severe to the person who's experiencing it. Right. And we don't actually need that extra word, but it's becoming so sort of like almost light. Does that make sense? Like when we're, we're throwing it around that people feel the need to add extra words and then that makes it yeah. even more complicated again. So um, we, we need a new word like mental illness light or something, something that <laughs> yeah. isn't that bad, but it's, we, we live with it. It's not too bad. It's not going to kill me, but yeah, I don't like it. Uh, yeah, I think my, um, my bet noir is the word clinical. Um, because people always come to me and say, I've got clinical depression. Well, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's like they go, well, my doctor said I was depressed. But if you go to see a doctor and list the load of symptoms of depression, what else are they going to say? <laughs> it has no meaning. Yeah, yeah. Cracky, I've never even thought about that one. Yeah, no, that's really... Um, I mean, really it used to be that depression, for instance, was, was neurotic or psychotic. Um, so psychotic depression was the severe end of the market where people can lose touch with reality. And for instance, I, I, I've seen people in their thirties and forties who aren't eating, they're not focusing, they're not going to work, they're lying in bed all day, they're at risk of DVTs because they're not moving, they're not feeding themselves, they've lost 20% of their body weight, they're not sleeping, they're anxious all the time, and then they start to think, maybe I'm responsible for the Holocaust in the Second World War. You know, and given their age, you know, it's palpably absurd. They couldn't possibly, it's beyond any uh, logical reasoning. So they've lost contact with reality and they, they feel then that they don't deserve to live, that they're nihilistic, they might not even exist in their own minds. I've had people who think that they are putrefying, their bowels are rotting. Now that's severe depression, psychotic depression. 
And nowadays we'd call that severe depression with psychotic symptoms. And then right at the other end of the depressive spectrum, you've got mild depression. And that could be two or three weeks of moderately low mood, some concentration, you're still going to work, you're able to cope. But, but you have these negative intrusive thoughts or you might be anxious or have sleep problems. So they're chalk and cheese, you know, what one of them you can kind of get on with and it's it is still depression and it is a diagnosable mental illness and at the other end you obviously probably need urgent hospital care to save your life so that's the problem you know one word depression has so many multitudes of meaning yeah definitely someone i once spoke to um did an episode with a, an advocate for OCD called um, Kath Benfield, who does some wonderful work. And she said to me that there's as many different types of OCD as there are people with OCD. And that yes. always kind of like, you know, that kind of really helped me to kind of understand it. And I suppose it's, it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? Like it's so individual. We can kind of use these, these terms to roughly know where we are, but so what's yeah. going on with the person can be, incredibly uh absolutely i mean she's right i've seen people who clearly have ocd but you know that they have to have two three rituals checking the house for instance before they get out of the front door and then they go to work and they're kind of okay till they get back again somebody who i saw once and i had to section them under the mental health act they hadn't left their bedroom for six years um, they were completely unable it was sort of the howard hughes end of the ocd world um that they were completely incapable of living any semblance of normal life and they'd imprison themselves in the little environment where they could cope with their most awful ocd and then you think well okay traditionally that's a neurotic disorder we used to think neurotic meant people have insight it's perhaps less serious uh but you know it's obviously a mental illness and it was debilitating and crippling to them so it needed you know, they might have understood what their problems were, but they had no ability to intervene to, to have the treatment that they say clearly needed. And actually, we got them in. Um, it turned out they had comorbid severe depression as well. We treated that. We treated the OCD then with behavioral treatments and high dose antidepressants. And they made something like an almost full recovery. So, you know, that's the gratification uh, when you actually treat these people. But you don't, most people wouldn't assume that someone who's been imprisoned and self-imprisoned in their own bedroom for six years, it, it could be OCD. Yeah. Is that, that, I mean, that must start getting super complicated when there's more than one diagnosis or label. Like how, because something that I found from speaking to so many different people with so many different experiences is that there's a, an incredible amount of overlap with these things you know like it, there is like sometimes the the label's different but and the, and the reason why people got sick is very very different but a lot of the experience of when they're sick or how they talk about that is quite similar so that must be a, like a, a really challenging part of your work is to kind of say well which bit of that is ocd and which part of that is depression and how does the yeah. you know how do we aim, aim treatment at that I, I think as in my younger years of growing up in psychiatry and trying to learn how to understand diagnoses, um, I was always trying to delineate clear space between different diagnoses. So I was going, well, this is depression, that's OCD, that's anxiety. And then within the psychotic fields, well, this is bipolar disorder or manic depression, as it was then called, or schizophrenia. 
And the truth is, I think there's far more overlap, as you imply in your question, between all the diagnoses. And I think, you know, anxiety and depression are very close bedfellows. And you, you almost don't get anxiety without some depression and you don't get depression without some anxiety, by and large. You know, I can't talk absolutes because there's always an exception to prove me wrong. It's the same with bipolar and schizophrenia. You know, we used to look at schizophrenia as an inexorable progressive type of illness that, you know, it relapsed and remitted, but on the whole, it got worse. And we saw people with bipolar as having full recoveries between episodes. Actually, I think the modern thinking is they're much closer in both cause and treatment than we used to think. So it's bewilderingly complex for me. And it's even worse for patients because, you know, they've been through three, four different diagnoses and they're going, doctor, for goodness sake, which one is it? What do I have? Is it depression or is it anxiety? I go, well, it doesn't really matter. The treatment's much the same. Um, that's the truth of it. And when you're talking about personality disorders, that's yet another le level of, you know, awful complexity because there's so much overlap. And to describe somebody as having, you know, uh, an anencastic or OCD type personality or an anxious avoidant or, or borderline or paranoid, there's such overlap. And in truth, we all probably carry different personality traits with us you know I, I have my own collection of personality traits and it might even spill over into some sort of personality disorder in some areas but it's a complex admixture like you said before no two people are the same yeah just i suppose when yeah any it doesn't really matter what you're doing when you're dealing with human beings it's just complicated isn't it it's just so we're yeah, complicated so, things we, yes, yeah, absolutely it's really really <laughs> messy yeah and do you think like the a lot of the stigma as well and particularly around like diagnosis and treatment and things like that i was thinking about this when i was reading your book really how like the human beings have always experienced mental illness yeah it's the way that we respond to that and treat that seems mm. to have sort of like changed a lot in a very short period of time. When we look at like the scope of history, it wasn't that long ago than when people were ill, we were like, you know, burning them or locking them up or do, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. it's yeah. sort of, it seems to have like, we didn't understand it for the longest time. And then in the last, however many years, then suddenly it's been, all right, this is like a medical thing. And now we need to invent medication for it. And now we need to, you know, like it seems to have sort of sped up pretty quickly. And I, I think that's got to add to the the messy stigma around it as well a bit, maybe. I, I think it has. And I think you're right. I, I see a lot of people who still have um spiritual views about mental illness driving out and the need to drive out the demons the need to exorcise people and it's very troubling because i've grown up in a sort of scientifically rationalist understanding of the world I'm, you know I'd, I'd like to think it's right i think it is but you know the the world's a big place and there's lots of different competing views fair enough and i'm not against that style of thinking but it has led to the subjugation and the incarceration of people with mental illness around the world um for centuries uh, and it, it, it's awful and it's no more and no less than we were doing to people with mental illness in the asylums back in victorian times it was seen i i think on by and large as a very sort of helpful progressive thing you had the york retreat which sort of showed that that the um the, the need to treat people with mental illness sensitively carefully with compassion uh, and then we have the vast opening of the asylums because there was no treatment for mental illness and 
we have no understanding now of what the social conditions would have been like with no treatment for mental illness, no drugs, no antipsychotics, no nothing. And people stayed mentally ill. Um, it probably relapsed and remitted and people had severe depressions. I, I see people with severe depression and untreated, they would be profoundly unwell for a year or so. And we know that because of the historical narrative in the asylums before they were treated. Now, it's still a terrible illness, but we can get that period of illness down to a matter of weeks rather than months or years. And that's the development. And it's what has allowed us, albeit with insufficient funds, to close the asylums largely and get people out into the community. And all we see now is criticism of the problems of community care. And that's, I think, inherent in the structural problems and the lack of funding of it, because so many people have mental disorders. You know, the, we, we carry a three to 4% lifetime risk of having some sort of psychotic disorder. 1% of people are around the world. It's not just here in the West. 1% of people have schizophrenia. That's a massive statistic. Yeah, startling. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Does it tend to be like there's a kind of like a some sort of this is a really big question. It's a vague question. I'm not even sure it's a good question, but there's like a genetic precursor towards potentially like mental illness. And then it's a case of whether it's like, you know, uh, upbringing, trauma, something like that, that kind of triggers that. I suppose I'm interested in why, yeah, why some people start to get poorly and then continue to slide, you know, continue to get sicker and sicker to the point of delusions and, and voices and things like that. Well, partly it's what the diagnosis is, but you're absolutely right. It's a complex mixture between your genetics and your environment. And excuse me, one of the nicest studies that articulates that so beautifully is the twin studies where um, you, you, you identify identical twins who are genetically the same in all regards and if one of them gets schizophrenia if it's just a genetic disorder you'd expect the other one to get schizophrenia they'd kind of have to because otherwise your hypothesis is wrong in actual fact it's something around 50 percent wow. so whilst it is clearly a genetic disorder there is also some sort of filter through the prism of environment or life experience or trauma whatever it is we don't really know and that moderates the genetic expression of the disease. And I think that's probably true in most disorders from diabetes to hypertension to rheumatoid arthritis and to most mental disorders as well. Uh, as well. So I think there's always a genetic predisposition, but that's not necessarily an inevitable curse that we live with. It doesn't mean you're going to get it. Um, if somebody is born with a risk of hypertension, it would be sensible, would it not, to sort of live a healthy life, don't smoke, exercise, keep your weight down. And that's, in, in essence, the sort of mental fitness sort of approach, keeping your mental health, which I think Harry and others are espousing now, to stay well, even though you've got the genetic risk factors. Yeah, yeah, it kind of makes, I suppose it's a, a lot of life, again, not just mentally, but in all many aspects it's about sort of like loading the dice in your favor isn't it and controlling yeah. the controllables and then it's and then the rest is down to, is down, to down to luck yeah hope <laughs> yes. for the hope for the best yeah yeah definitely you were you're talking about um recovery there before and um i think that's something as well that maybe doesn't get talked about enough when it comes to like mental illness and that is people 
recovering and going back into the community and there was a, a like a quote from your book and I wrote it down because it really stood out to me and it said that when you um you wrote that when you ask people what they want it wasn't necessarily to get off medication or for the illness to be cured but it was to have a decent job something to do somewhere to live and someone to love yep. and that's like it sounds like a song lyric when you put it like that, doesn't it? <laughs> it, does, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. But I thought that was really beautiful. It was a really like um, very human, very sort of like humble, content, and something really, really nice about it. And I think, yeah, when we are scared to talk about some of these these illnesses and these diagnoses, and there is all this stigma about it, we forget that underneath it, there is a person that just wants to do these simple things. But people do, don't they? People get well and, and live well and continue to live well. And, you yeah. know, it just becomes a small, you know, meeting someone like yourself just becomes a small chapter in their life, maybe. Absolutely. The problem is, from the severe end of the mental health market, though, it is difficult to hold a job down. Um, and the unemployment rates are simply massive, obscenely massive. And when I get people under my care as a hospital inpatient, and I'm looking to discharge them, and they haven't got anywhere to go, and that they've lost contact with their family for all sorts of complex reasons, and I, I contact the local authority, and they say, yeah, tell them to present as homeless and we'll put them in a bed and breakfast accommodation. And we know that they've got a mental illness, their capacity is not great, they're not going to get a job, they're not going to get a wage, they'll be stuck on benefits, they're in shitty accommodation. It's desperate because it's just that revolving door of social malaise linking to health problems. And I don't know what this solution is apart from going back to basics and thinking about where are these people living? Are they going to get a job? Uh, and there's something vaguely obscene, I think, about sending people out from secure hospitals or prisons still functionally illiterate. How can you get on in life when you can't read and write? It's just crazy. You know, whatever I can do, it's tiny. Um, all I can do is, you know, intervene in some small way in small aspect of our lives, but there's so many other negative social pressures on them. Hmm. That's, um, yeah, that's the real problem, isn't it? With the system that, yeah, that people can kind of start to get better. And then it's, it's almost like, you know, how, yeah. How do you stand a chance, right? If the system's yeah. not, if there's not things in place to, well, you uh, can, if there's people around you helping you with loving families, a job to go back to get some stability in your life, surround yourself by peers who don't use the drugs or the crack or the puff or whatever it is that your problem is or booze. Um, and those people do well, but so many people have lost that sort of good peer influence. They've lost their mates there's a big difference when you're recovering from the severe mental illness and forgive me for using that term again i think it does apply to the more psychotic end of the patients i treat um that they they really don't have a chance so often because you've got the medical recovery but they, they don't have the social recovery uh, and i see that more and more now with, with people with for instance the disorders like i said earlier that we used to think remit and you have full recovery and i can get someone who is manic back to being having a normal mood state and being able to function normally probably within three or four weeks on average with medication 
they go, thanks very much, Doc. Can I go home now? I go, sure. But at that point, their marriage is in pieces. They've spent all their money from the manic state. They don't have the job anymore. Uh, and the social recovery takes years, not months. Yeah. That's the yeah, problem. That's, that's uh, where I society is failing. Yeah, if so much of the the problem why people get sick in the first place is environmental, you know, yeah. and then, yeah, and then throwing them back into the same environment. That's, um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. But what that's can really you do? Yeah, yeah, like you say. Like you say, just do, you know, the best you can with the bit that you're involved in, isn't it? And that's, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. that's what, yeah. But we need yeah. to start earlier in the schools. We, we need the Head Start programmes. We need the anti-truancy campaigns. We need to give the kids who are starting to fail sort of, a leg up, get them back in, extra tuition, extra training, stop this fetishization of sort of higher degrees, give them skills, practical jobs they can do. The best thing I ever saw in a psychiatry hospital was in Germany and they'd got a workshop and they'd got an old Mercedes Jeep and the young men, all of whom were offenders and they were trying to sort of get them back on the straight and narrow again, they were offenders with mental illness, so they were treated and their occupational therapy wasn't pottery and so forth. It was practical skills. And they would strip the Mercedes down one week and they'd move the parts through to the next room and they'd rebuild it again. And they were learning real life skills. And they all came out, you know, you can go off to whatever the German Halfords is and say, can I have a job as a mechanic? And it was just wonderful to see. Yeah. That's what we need. Yeah, we very need, much. We need, so. we need less of me and more people to learn how to strip a Mercedes. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, very much so. And as well as like the practical skills, it's also how you feel about yourself, isn't it? You know, how how people feel about themselves is I think is a huge part in um in getting better is just, you know, feeling good that you're able to, you know, learning stuff is good for us and being able to do stuff, feeling of value, feeling like I, I've got a chance, like I can be a part of something. That's yeah, But it's not feeling you've got value, it's being value. Being uh, value, and, yeah. And this is the, the, the deceit in, in psychology and psych, psychiatry. We, we sometimes say, well, you have to think yourself better. And that is important. The cognitive strategies are vitally important. I'm not decrying them. But actually, people need jobs. People need some spending money to be able to go out dating and treat somebody and develop the social relationships. That's what they need. And then they do feel better about themselves. And it's not then just a cognitive approach. It's real. It's meaningful. So, you know, everything has to be sort of paired up between the, the psychological and the social recovery as well. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't forget, I'm coming at it from a psychiatrist treating mental illness. Uh, and I, I think what you just said there it kind of sort of speaks of the the, the anxiety the the depression possibly dependency and restructuring our cognitive thinking styles and that's vitally important it's just not what i do and it's not what i see on you know, from one day to the next yeah sure i suppose you're sort of one level or several levels before that bit right is that kind of uh, so yeah, yeah. I, I mean those, those are the things that you know the psychologists the counselors the peer support groups that's where they come into the fore that, that's mm. what they do so well yeah yeah definitely well i suppose that that in mind there was a couple of aspects of that that i wanted to um to chat to you about and one of those is uh delusion so that word yeah. is it comes up a lot in in the book and yeah. what some of the people that or the experiences that you're you're writing about um it comes up a lot how do you What's the best way to sum that up for people if they're not sure what, what delusions are? It's, it's a belief um, that persists despite evidence to the contrary. 
So um, it's sometimes difficult with religious beliefs, but if, for instance, um, I think that God is, has given me special powers um, and I go into the street and I start to preach and I proselytize. And when people aren't listening, I grab one of them and say, nay, I, I am God, you have to listen. And then I might strip off because that's a godly thing to do and run around naked. And when I'm arrested for public disorder offense by the police, I say, actually, I am God. Um, I come along and say, you have a delusion of grandeur. It's a firmly held belief. And if I said to this person, um who do you think you are i would say i'm god i know i'm god I, I i've got special powers it might be i think i'm christ at the other end of the spectrum I, I gave you the example of believing you're responsible for the holocaust you know firm belief you couldn't possibly be responsible for the holocaust and be a 40 year old person just not possible so it's against all sort of euclidean possibilities um what else delusions of jealousy I'm watching a pop star and they're singing a song and I just absolutely know that some of the lyrics are a love overture to me. Okay. Delusion of jealousy. Um, I might think my wife's having an affair. Now, if I see some sexual uh, messages on a phone, she might well be having an affair. But if I believe that she's having an affair because of the extra sensory messages that the man on the train was giving me and the rhododendron bush blew a certain way in the driveway and I just went haha that's proof my wife is having an affair that's a delusion of jealousy so delusions are firmly held beliefs and they are mad they are paranoid by nature yeah. And then would that be a case of because obviously that's someone's reality, then that's where the medication helps to kind of. Yeah, you, know, you can't reason it away. And that's the whole point of delusions. They're not something that are amenable to reason. You can talk to people till you're blue in the face about them and they will still believe you. And the person who is God will look very sort of beatifically at you and go, you, you don't understand these things, but I do. And they'll listen to you and they'll communicate with you but they will still believe that that they are God. Yeah. And, and the, the other thing that kind of, I suppose, alongside delusions that I wanted to ask you about is um, insight. Because if yeah. you're like treating people to sort of, you know, maybe not believe these things so much anymore, eventually they're going to hopefully realize that that's not the case. But that must be like insight must be such a tricky ground to navigate because you know you're essentially it's for it's one of a better word it's someone's identity temporary identity maybe and you're kind of like you know look peer, showing them behind the curtain maybe is the is what i'm trying to say i, I think insight's such a difficult concept and I, I i'm i think i'm only just sort of getting the idea of it now after 30 odd years um i i treated a chap um a few years ago and he thought that his daughter had been abducted by mi6 and we treated him and as we did his paranoid psychosis and it was a schizophrenic illness improved and he started to get insight and as he did he realized that his daughter hadn't been kidnapped by the security services but had died in a road crash uh, with her boyfriend and 
the realization of what had actually happened accounting for his daughter's disappearance was far worse than the illness and in that sense it was the comfort of madness i don't see that terribly often but it makes you realize um that we really are sometimes putting our patients through a lot i had the same experience with someone who had in the context of a purple psychosis that killed their daughter uh, which is the most tragic thing I, I think I can think of in the field of psychiatry. It's just shocking and awful. And as we treated her, such was her level of depression, uh, as she understood what she had done as sanity set in, she tried to kill herself. Um, so you can see why, because I'm not sure I'd want to wake up from madness to realise I'd killed my child because the reality is worse than the illness in some areas. Uh, and that gives rise to all sorts of ethical and philosophical concerns about what you should do in those situations. I think, fortunately, um, for most people, as they recover from severe mental illness and they regain insight, usually it's thanks you get, because they go, actually, it was a living nightmare. It was really awful. It was so shit, it was untrue. I can't describe how bad it was. When I first saw you, Doc, I thought I was dead. That's how bad it is. And we mustn't lose sight of the fact that psychosis is something different. It is otherworldly. It is a living nightmare for some people. Um, it is not a normal existence. It's not something that we should seek to support people in. I think personally and I know people disagree with this but we need to treat it assertively if not aggressively because it's profoundly damaging for the individual and it's a bit like saying someone has a right to diabetes sure you can if somebody makes a capacity decision to have an illness that's fine but if you've lost capacity and you need help and you're living a nightmare surely the only ethical thing to do is treat them so yeah. insight's a fascinating area and mostly it's not an issue. I, I've highlighted some areas in the book where it becomes hugely problematic. Yeah, yeah. It's um, Craigie, more than anything, it's just like it's just heartbreakingly sad, isn't it, that someone's ended up in that situation where, you know, where they're sort of caught between, you know, one awful thing and another awful thing. Really, it's um, yeah, it's it's tough. But I think we deserve as humans to have the reality of the situation given back to us. Um, I can understand people having comforting beliefs or cognitive distortions. God knows I can't get through a day without a good cognitive distortion to make myself feel better. But yeah, we're talking about here, you know, psychosis and life and death. Um, I think at the serious end, it's, it's a problem. But no, I, 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 um, I distort lots of things. I have a great reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was really interested to um to ask as well why you decided to write the book you know what was it like what you you know there must have uh yeah you know was there something that you wanted to I suppose to to get out there or to say or to shine a light on in in particular by um you know by because uh, you know the one of the things you, the uh situations you just mentioned was in the book and there's a lot of stories in the book that are that yeah. are like that that are quite shocking it certainly gave me a lot to a lot to think about you know it was um yeah it was really really fascinating to me but yeah why why did you decide to to write it um the simple truth is i always wanted to write a book 
Um, it was as simple as that. And um, I'd finished a job as a group medical director. So I was responsible for 20, 23 hospitals over the country. And that was hard work. And I finished that and I had a few months off and I wrote a fictional thriller. And it didn't go anywhere. It's complete nonsense, obviously. It's the first book. And uh, I want to rewrite that. But I sent it off to the agents. It got absolutely nowhere. And I was walking with my wife. um, And she said, why don't you write then about something you know about, something that you understand? And that really hit a chord with me. Um, I'd always written narratives of some of the cases I've dealt with some of the people I've seen and interviewed and I did a few articles from a personal narrative for the BMJ and a couple of forensic journals and I just started to write about case examples the 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 first thing I ever wrote was about the the woman I tried to give ECT to and failed I ended up giving it to myself that's in the story it's almost a comedic exercise in uh, medical incompetence but it had a happy ending sort of um and I wrote that and I thought okay I'm enjoying that I could do that so I started to link stories and I then realized there was a whole narrative about mental illness that I hadn't seen people write about I've seen people write about psychotherapy psychoanalysis um we've got the house of god uh you know from years ago about sort of medical issues that was Samuel Shem we've got Adam Kay's uh, book about obstetrics and gynecology but there wasn't anything I could relate to and I was watching this debate emerge over several years about mental health and I thought they're not talking about what I do they're not talking about the delusions and the hallucinations and severe illness that I've been dealing with and when, as the conversation started, my own wife, who, who's bright, educated, a journalist, when she said, I don't really know what the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist is, I thought, okay, it could be educative. And then I thought, I want to build the stories around what I've learned from the patients, because I've learned, so, you know, that we, we, we think that medicine is a profession, it's not, it's just a long apprenticeship. Uh, and we see people, we make mistakes, we see how colleagues are doing it, if they're doing it better, we'll sort of copy their style of interaction. And it's just how you learn to develop your, your own skill set. And the, the patients have taught me as much as the textbooks have. You, you need a basic you know, grounding in science, but then it's how you interact with people and what you can bring to the table. And that's the story I wanted to write. It was about my development, what I've given to the patients, what they've given to me. And I suppose also the nurses, um, because I think what many people have picked up on is that the nurses are there all the time with the patients and they do the most brilliant job, by and large. And I I am... (laughs) there's a chapter that's entitled the love letter to nurses and it really is and you know they have helped shape my thinking and my my, how I've worked with colleagues because psychiatry is not a solitary profession we work in complex multidisciplinary teams we look out for each other and that's the joy of it so that's why I wrote it it was just to try and articulate what I do and some of it is desperately sad and hopefully I've thrown in little curveballs 
some bits of wisdom, things I've gleaned over the years, and probably a healthy dose of humour too. I hope I have anyway. Yeah, I, I certainly, uh, I certainly think you have. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, <laughs> it's very it, dark humour though. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's true, you know. But um, I think it's kind of got to be given the uh, the subject. But it's always at my expense. It's not at the patient's. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's the, that's, the only uh... person I make fun of is me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, brought up the nurses chapter as well because that was actually my notes to to mention right. because I, I I think it's like yeah it it, it when we have you know, we talk about mental health and mental illness and there's awareness days and there's all these things. And that's great. And I always think that as, as good as it is to talk about this stuff and people post about it and all the rest of it, but there's, there's people that are out there like day in, day out, sort of getting their hands dirty. Right. And we tend to forget about that when people are making nice, pretty things to put on Instagram is like for some people, it's a, it's a, <laughs> nice a life. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a life, isn't it? And a reality and a real like service. And I think it's a beautiful, um, a beautiful thing yeah definitely i'm uh, i'm gonna let you go mate because i've had you a lot of time i'm gonna ask you one more thing it's a bit of a stereotypical question but you know yeah. when we are dealing with these harder things how do you separate yourself from that because like you say some of the stories in the book they are sad they're heartbreaking sad it was you know there's a couple of times when i kind of felt that i needed to just sort of sit with what i just read before i moved on to the next chapter and yeah. you know, for you that 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 could be Tuesday afternoon, <laughs> you know. So I was like, how? Yeah, how, how do you kind of, or how have you learned? I suppose over the years to like protect yourself from some of the sadder, harder things that you see. Uh, it's very difficult to answer that. I, I think it has been difficult at certain points in my life. I think it's not got the better of me, but it certainly gives you a very jaundiced view of humanity when you look at what terrible things one person can do to another in terms of the offending side of things. I think because perhaps of my understanding of mental illness, it's slightly easier to understand people's problems with their mental illness. Uh, uh, but ultimately it's about talking about it. It's trying to find a way that you can cope with those awful situations, peer support, talking about it with loved ones, perhaps, uh, and reflection. Um, we, we talk to colleagues, probably more, I think most patients would be surprised how much doctors talk between themselves. And what Patients in hospitals, and I'm talking about all sorts of patients now, you know, cardiac wars, orthopedic wars, anything where there's complexity, oncology, there are, what you see at the bedside is probably a tenth of what goes on in terms of the discussions, the discourse, the checking the radiology, the bloods, thinking about where the problems are. So there's only a very small narrative that the patient actually sees. Um, there's an awful lot of other stuff, and that's the supportive nurturing caring areas where I think we support each other uh, we have to you know it's probably like the teacher's common room I imagine I'm sure they sort of go in and start to go you know what's going on here and who, who do we need to support oh god it was a difficult lesson how do you know how do you cope with that and I think all professions have their own ways of discussing it with colleagues um, what else exercise triathlon uh, open water swimming, skiing. Um, I absolutely adore skiing. I go skiing whenever I can. Um, uh, I um, 
uh, I my knees aren't too good now, having done uh, Ironman competitions and uh, too much running in my young years. Uh, so exercise. Yeah, yeah. Mental health needs physical yeah. support, right? Yeah. And yeah, since COVID, nice. I've got a lovely little gym in my garage now as well. That's great. <laughs> yeah, perfect, right? Yeah, job done. Oh, mate, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was, um, yeah, I had so much that I wanted to uh, chat to you about, and we got through like nearly all of it. So I'm very oh, chuffed. Absolutely but, um, great. It was really, really fascinating, and it was lovely to meet you. You too. Thank you so much. A big up to the proper mental podcast. The proper mental podcast.